People today consider all kinds of things art, a blank canvas, a person standing still. But what should a Christian consider art? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. People consider many different things to be art, things that in previous generations would have just been considered trash, and things that were considered very good art in previous generations, like the statues that the statues, like the statues that were pulled down during the riots last year. Those were considered good art in their day, and now, as a culture, we've defined them to be evil art. But we know that we don't get to define these terms. In the end, God gets to define what is good and bad art. So how is a Christian supposed to discern what is good art and what is bad art? And, I mean, you, you do have to recognize when you try and define art that it's a difficult thing. It's difficult to come up with necessary and sufficient conditions for what's art, and then on top of that to apply judgment to it about what's good and bad. And and it's especially difficult for Christians who in many other spheres would say, oh, yes, there's objective truth, there's, you know, God rules over everything. But when they come to things like art, they end up saying, oh, well, it's all just matters of taste, have some kind of relativistic approach to it. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, it's what you like, it's not what I like, that kind of thing. But really, you know, we want to say that the, the Bible is sufficient for every human endeavor, and clearly art is a major part of human culture and flourishing. So does God say anything about this? I mean— Absolutely, he does. But when we start trying to define art, when your culture starts trying to define art, it rarely goes to God first. It rarely goes to the Bible first. And even when you were describing what art is, you threw in the word beauty. But a lot of the art now, I think most people would not consider beauty necessarily to be a significant part of it, right? A lot of it is it has to be shocking. It has to cause you to think differently about the world, that it's to be provocative rather than actual you know, thinking arts associated with beauty. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, that's a fairly old idea that has been rejected. Or if you do say it has something to do with beauty, you start playing with the definition of beauty and start stretching what is, you know, what we consider to be beautiful. Just to kind of lay a baseline of of one definition of art that's out there, uh, this is what uh, what Wikipedia has to say about what art is. Art is a diverse range of human activity and resulting product that involves creative or imaginative talent, expressive of technical proficiency, beauty, emotional power, or conceptual ideas. Art is something that stimulates an individual's thoughts, emotions, beliefs, or ideas through the senses. So I think even in that definition, there's kind of some obvious problems that arise. Like you, the idea that art is something that stimulates an individual's thoughts through the senses. Well... I mean, that's literally anything can stimulate your thought. So now is anything art. So does it doesn't mean anything at all. Well, I mean, you could say uh, it's a necessary condition, but it's clearly not sufficient. It doesn't put any boundaries on art. And I mean, you know, as you go through different definitions as you're trying to find it, that's really the hard thing is you can say, well, he, art, art must have these components to it. But then when do you get the, the edges of that? That's not that's not this definition. The problem is, is that people remove those edges, right? I mean, like, it used to be that there had to be some semblance of beauty, so that, and then that gets removed. There had to be some semblance of skill, but I'm sorry, putting a blank canvas up on a wall is not something that is inherently skillful in the production of the blank canvas, at least. And so, I mean, you know, people try to define art and say, well, it has to have these components, and then we eliminate the components so that it becomes less and less meaningful what art is. 
as we get this this flex in the definitions, I mean, even even philosophers are starting to see the problem, right? Like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says, the definition of art is controversial in contemporary philosophy. Whether art can be defined has also been a matter of controversy. The philosophical usefulness of a definition of art has also been debated. So in philosophy, they're basically going, who knows what art is? <laughs> because we're not even sure if it would be useful to define what art is. <laughs> right. And right now, it's just whatever art is, whatever you think art is. And that's really, I mean, I would say that we degraded to the point where we're saying art is whatever we think art is. Can you run through some examples of art that is uh, very famous and well regarded and, you know, a normal person with common sense will say that's ridiculous. Like there's a, a painting here called Blue Line that is a tiny blue line on a basically blank canvas, and that would sell for millions and millions of dollars. You know, here this is an interesting one. For $84,000, an artist returned two blank canvases titled Take the Money and Run. So someone had given them a big pile of cash um, to do like a second um, copy of a work of art that they did. I think showing like the gender pay gap, and so they decided instead they're just going to keep the money and return a blank canvas. And it's no, a, two of them, two Joshua. blank canvases. Sorry, sorry, but yeah, but now that's performance art, and so the question is that actually art? A lot of people say that's amazing art. Um, and then this is a classic example uh, from 1917, where someone took a urinal and said that that was a statue. And it became a pretty famous statue. And, you know, things like that are, I mean, that pretty obvious. I don't know exactly what the artist said about that, but that's pretty obviously, you know, poking at the definition of art. And whether he acknowledged it or not, it's basically mocking the definition of art and saying that whatever we want can be art. You can take something and just do nothing to it, and now it's art. It probably stimulated the thought of the person whose money he took. And the pre you know, according to the definition of art, it probably caused them to think all sorts of thoughts. It probably induced emotions in them, like anger at the fact that they had paid him $84,000 and that he returned two blank canvases. So it fits into the Wikipedia definition of art. But I do think, you know, like this, this picture in particular, that, I mean, in Afghanistan, this was one of the things that America was doing to to civilize Afghanistan is they were actually using this and teaching classes on how this is what proper art is. This particular is. piece. This particular piece. And, and so when you go to a group of people where the group of people are actually having to deal with their lives and they aren't just have a lot of money and they can just, you know, idleness and fullness of bread, which is kind of like where we are as a nation. And they just look at these people and think, how stupid can you be? I mean, this is just insane. And yet we expect to use these things to build credibility. Like we're actually thinking through things and we just look like fools. I think idleness and fullness of bread is a good thing to think about as we have this discussion, because part of the position where we are with art is because of idleness and fullness of bread. I mean, there is a part of it as we talk about some of the different things. Your view of what art is changes greatly, whether you're trying to find food to eat tomorrow or whether you're incredibly wealthy and you believe that and you've forgotten the God that that blessed you. Right. And so th there is a part of it where as we talk about these things, you know, man is seeking for his own fulfillment. Man is seeking his own heart. And there starts to be the rebellion of man's heart starts to really be displayed in what he calls art. We need to recognize this, too, that that this is part of God's judgment, right? I mean, when we look at this, we can just pretend like man has went this direction. No, this is God turning people over to foolishness. This isn't like just, oh, look, we decide to call a urinal a fountain. This is 
part of the judgment of God. This is part of confusion, right? We did a podcast on confusion about how confusion is a judgment. And when you say this is art, that's part of that judgment. Right. And we, you know, we can look now and we can look over the last 10 years how we've embraced sodomite marriage, all these other things that are ridiculous and absurd and that a, a girl can be born a man and vice versa. I mean, the reality is God started that judgment 100 years ago. And you see it in here. And so when you look at the art, you should say what not just what is man saying about the heart because he can rebel all he wants, but it is also God that's turning him over to a heart right. that, that wants to rebel. He's turning him over to, to foolishness where you call this art. Because this is some pretty new stuff in, in art history, relatively speaking. You know, it was kind of over the 20th century that art kind of fell apart in the opinion of a lot of people, um, it, not only art falling apart and just kind of devolving to meaninglessness, you know, poetry also, similar things where poetry just kind of has devolved. You, you look at a book of poetry and by the, by plenty of standards, there's not poetry in most books of poetry now. Um, and they've kind of lost all the things that made poetry what poetry was. And, you know, it, this, as this happened in the 20th century, there's a lot of other things going on in the 20th century. Um, there's, there's, you know, the secularization of a lot of countries where people are searching for meaning apart from God. And I was reading a book uh, last week on a completely unrelated topic, and he had a line in there that, you know, art is what modern people replace religion with. So that was really true that, you know, people, you know, they're in their daily lives, they don't believe in God, but art is what they see as the thing that breaks them out of that drudgery and that elevates them to, to make what they're doing actually meaningful. Now, does it actually make it meaningful? Well, not really, but that's, that's the hope. And when you look at art, like, you know, Demetrius the silversmith, right? I mean, most art historically has been associated with idolatry. So when you think of art, you can't ignore the idea of transcendence because a lot of art was about transcendence. I mean, there's a lot of idols that have been made that were considered art. And so, you know, the idea that we would still consider to be art to be something that transcends the mundane and is something above the mundane, well, that's kind of been around for a long time, that idea. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd like us to be a little more fine-grained in what we're talking about there because, you know, a lot of what you're talking about with the degradation of art i mean you're talking about a degradation of what we would say particularly is high art the sort of art that people would hang in museums and sell in auctions and that's the sort of thing that went from being paintings or or sculpture or something like that to these very odd pieces of modern art um you know but anytime you go back and you look throughout the course of history there's always been bad art there's always been trashy art there's always been low-class art and you know a lot of that just hasn't survived or it hasn't survived to the point where we talk about it as art because, you know, when you say opening an art textbook, there's a sense in which people don't quite care about the graffiti as much. Right. But right. they do now. <laughs> but they do now because, you know, because of what we're thinking, you know, because we're sort of blurring these lines between high art and pop art and folk art and all those kinds of things. And, you know, so you can have, you know, a lot of when you talk about art being associated with idolatry, I would say that's a lot of a lot of what we would say is the high art sure. is associated with that. And then, I mean, you know, but you've got a lot of, say, folk art, people weaving blankets and putting designs on their pottery that's just, in a sense, it's an elevation of the everyday, hey, I've got to use a part, I'm, I've got to use a pot, I might as well make a pot with a rabbit on it because it looks fun and I'll enjoy baking with it more. 
So yeah, and there's you know, and the idea here isn't to trash everything modern. It's a it's a particular strain, and it's a very sure. very uh, strain with a lot of money in it, and a lot of you know professors and all these things. But there's a tremendous amount of very skilled you know art that's being produced nowadays. But there is uh, there is a particular trend that is very problematic. I mean, and one element that it, that is a big element in certain things is in, is people intentionally um, flipping the, the the you know things that are considered good morally good in the past and intentionally reversing that. Um, where you have a famous example from decades ago was where they had the crucifix in the bottle of urine, and that's in, uh, intentionally intentionally trying to, to do that type of thing. And the Bible has things to say about that. Like Isaiah 5, verses 20 through 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. So you have a lot of people in that genre of art um, who are very wise in their own eyes, and the way that they manifest that is doing exactly what that says, taking the things that are considered good and making them evil. And there seems, I mean, I've certainly heard people say that, you know, a core element of art is that it has to shock. Well, that has not historically been a core element of art. But when you start to get this idea, the idea is that what people find acceptable, you must rebel against that in order for it to be good art. And that's a really horrible definition. Like like you said, I mean, in Isaiah, God's saying, you know, woe to those who do this. But they, to be wise in their own eyes, they have to do things that are shocking that everybody else finds to just be appalling and against what, what anybody should be doing. But it shocks them, so then they're impressed with the person, and the person gets wiser in their own eyes. I mean, if you're using the shock value of a piece of art in order to drive somebody back to the true, the good, the beautiful, then, then your shock has worthwhileness. Right. But if you're just saying, oh, well, it has to shock for the sake of shocking just because art has to push against whatever the accepted norms are, then you don't really have any purpose other than being anti, anti-now. Right. right. There's a sense where when we choose topics, we look for, you know, hey, what are accepted things that are that are in the wrong direction, and we want to push against that. But like Jonathan said, we never go – hey, now that people have accepted what's good, let's do an episode and push them back the other way again. And that is, that is the fundamental attitude. I mean, it's, and it's interesting because when you think about rebellion, there's a part of it where you can rebel with anything. I mean, I always, as a parent, you know, I use the example of you've got a bunch of kids sitting on a bed, they're eating pizza and watching a movie. You need to leave the room for a little bit. So you go, hey, guys, just stay on the bed, eat your pizza, watch the movie. Oh, well. Now they don't want to stay on the bed. Now they don't want to eat the pizza. You've told them to stay on the bed and eat the pizza. They were perfectly happy doing it, and they'll rebel against it. And so you can rebel with anything. But there's a part of it where when you actually set your mind to rebellion, you actually start entering into, like, perversion, which means to twist. I mean, and your goal is to just keep twisting and keep turning and turning it as far as you can. You try. I mean, it is a, it is a desire to turn it as far as you can see. And you can see generationally as, you know, as, each generation twists and turns and pushes things farther than the last generation. And there's this, but it's because of a, a specific desire to do so. It's not just pure, simple rebellion. It's let me see how far I can rebel. Let me take it to the limits that I can see. You know, when we see that picture of rebellion, right, they're even rebelling against their own people. Like there was, uh, you know, Love is in the Bend by Banksy. He, 
He did this painting, and my understanding of it was that as it was being auctioned off, or right after it was auctioned off, he then had in the bottom of the, the painting a shredder that shredded the picture that people just bought. So he's not just mocking our culture. He's actually mocking the people that are paying him a lot of money. And so, of course, they paid him more money. And so when we look at these things, too, we have to recognize that that there is difference between rebellion where your child says, I'm going to stop eating the pizza because my father did it. And when you get all the elites doing it, because when you're talking about this, you're talking about the people that have wealth, which means strength, right? They have influence in our society. They have money. They, you know, somebody like Bill Gates has a lot of influence. The people that are spending this kind of money for a blank canvas, this kind of money for a thin blue line, they're, you know, they're the elites of the society. So when you look at their rebellion, it is reflective of the whole society's rebellion because these are Right. These are the elite. It's right. useful to kind of think about some of these arts not just as a, a, a an object of art by itself. It's it's an object of art in a particular context in a particular culture. You know, so so I can actually look at something like this painting by by Banksy or or the one that you referenced earlier, the take the money and run, and I can say I see what these artists are doing. They're saying this entire culture is just a scam, and you know we're going to play along with it a little bit by thumbing our noses at it some because the whole modern art world and market and industry is just a bunch of self-congratulating elites and and we kind of want to point out that the emperor has no clothes and unfortunately you you know the more you try and point out that 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 how stupid it is the more the elites are willing to to bend and flex and say oh well that's lovely too See, I would and, even argue that it's there's another element to the art, which is, in a sense, they're thumbing their nose at it, but in a sense, what they're doing is they're exercising power, because it is about power. It's about getting people to say, isn't that wonderful, I have shredded pieces of canvas, and isn't that wonderful, I put up on the wall of a museum the blank canvas, because a lot of it is about the artist going, I have power to manipulate these people. And it really is this display of these people are such fools, I can get them to go anywhere I want, and I can just like drag them around by their nose. I mean, one thing that we should recognize with all this is, you know, some of this we can, you know, these people pretend like, oh, they're just in it for the art. The reality is a lot of money laundering happens because of art. That's a big element of the art world right now is that the reason that, I mean, let's do the most obvious example. Hunter Biden can't paint, but he can sell his paintings for $500,000, which is effectively money laundering. Somebody's bribing the president, so they get buy a painting from him for $500,000. And now, you know, and so the value of art and the, the variability of it and the high prices of it, a lot of this has to do with a way to exchange money without having the same taxes because art taxes differently. I mean, there's there's a lot of manipulation it's not a by the donation, right? It's, right. It's, it can't but be I'm even saying when way. you trans when you transfer one art piece of art to another, the taxes and stuff. I mean, there's right. all kinds of things that are going on there that basically allow the elites to play this game so that they can shuffle money around. And so, some of the reason that these things get to be such high price is because it's a way to to make money fungible, make money so that you can't track it anymore. And when you're talking about that that top edge of the market, the sort of things where you hear news stories about it, even economists don't really understand that market. It's all very opaque and it's very unpredictable. And you can't – it's really hard to invest in art 
as as a, a safe investment vehicle because it's so speculative. Or you, you're somebody like Bill Gates who has such a name that by buying the piece of art, you increase the value of the sure. art because people go, oh, look, he's Bill Gates. He owned this. It must be valuable art. And then he sells it for more. And so they're almost trading on their name by doing it because that's why a lot of it you know, goes up in value is, well, this guy bought it. He has billions of dollars. He must know what he's doing. And I mean, that's so much the, the way that the art market works is it really depends on provenance and which which gallery had this piece, did they display it, which collector had it at some right. point. And, and those things almost become more important than the object itself or the creator of the object. And when it's a blank canvas, it kind of does, by definition, say that it has to be based on other things other than the fact that it's a blank canvas. And I think one thing that can be helpful is to look at where uh, the term art came from. Um, you know, we don't set our definitions from modern words by the etymology, but it can be useful, especially when you have a word like art that no one really knows exactly what it means. So the definition of art in 1755 was this. One, the power of doing something not taught by nature and instinct, as to walk is natural, to dance is an art. Two, a science as the liberal arts. Three, a trade. Four, artfulness, skill, dexterity. Five, cunning, and six, speculation. And I think the core of it there, what art is coming from is the idea uh, of a skill. Um, the, the Latin root for that is related to, to an actual skill. Um, and and that, is, that, that part of the definition has been lost um, in the artistic meaning of the word. I mean, we, and we still have this definition uh, in modern English. You know, the art of the stonemason is talking about the trade. It's not talking about, you know, artistic in the sense that they mean by, you know, genres of art and this type of thing. Emotional response right, from your stone right. masonry. But that definition has been separated and is a different meaning. And we have purged artisticness from uh, any trace of requiring skill. And it's interesting because, you know, doing business and things, what you see is businesses are trying to eliminate that from even their employees. Meaning that most things were considered an art at some level. Unless you were on a on a production line where you just you know tightening a, a nut all day long, everything else has you know computer programming is an art. I mean, there's skill to it. But as soon as you say that, then you start to say that people are different, and we're such a there's a view of this democracy in our society that says that there can't be somebody that's ten times better than somebody else. And the reality is that happens all the time. And that's who would be considered an artist is the guy who's really good at it, not the guy who's average at it. But as we've we've rejected the idea, you know, there's in computer programming, there's this whole idea of the mythical man month is that you just add everybody together and you consider everybody the same. It's not like that at all. It's very common that one person can do 10 times as much work as somebody else. That's not unusual at all. And I don't think that's specific to that field. I've worked with carpenters and there's some carpenters that can do stuff 10 times faster than other carpenters. And that's what it used to be to be an artist is somebody that or an artisan would be somebody that was was really good at it, was better at it, was more able to produce more. And so even when you look at the fine arts, that was kind of the difference, right? The person who could weave a, a blanket that had a picture of a rabbit in it, you know, that's a lot different than, you know, the, the old masters. But they're on the same scale. It was just the idea is that somebody got a lot better at it. Right, you look at the old tapestries. I mean, some of those that were in castles and stuff. I mean, they paid a lot of money for them because those that was considered the high art wasn't like separate from the low art. It was the people who were really good at it. 
there was a point where art was connected to purpose. It was connected to it was connected to reality in a way. It was connected to the world that God had made. And there is this attempt in some ways to separate those two, to kind of pull away from the world that God has made. There's an there's even an attempt to kind of separate from the idea that art requires an artist. You know, what I mean, because in the end, I mean that they they really want to focus on the idea that art is whatever they experience, as opposed to you no. Know, there is a purpose to things. God's created the purpose. And when you start talking about judging things, you have to kind of, if you want to have definitive standards of what's good or what's bad, you have to say, what's it for? You have to say, what does it do? What does it accomplish? What does it move me towards? And to do that, things have to be connected. But if you untether them like we have today, it makes it, you get, that's how we've gotten to the position where you, what is art? You can't say what art is. It's whatever anybody wants to say it is. And so in the end, it doesn't necessarily mean that I don't get to come up with the definition of art, but you can at least push on it. You can push it in the right direction. You can start to push against it and say there are real things that God has created and there are real ways that you should think about it. And I think, you know, the idea of having fine art and that being something that's better and more important than just being a very skilled tradesman is something that's been around for a long time and people have been pushing for a very long time um, that there's something special about you know, painting, there's something special about writing. And, you know, they do have unique characteristics. Um, but it's not, you know, I, I think when you look scripturally, there's a lot of uh, practical um, things that are what we're commanded to do. And the idea that being very skilled at uh, carpentry is never going to be as good as being a skilled painter. That's, that's a pretty dangerous idea. And, it, and it's an idea that has caused real consequences in the country. There's a lot of people who spent a lot of years and a lot of money going to college to get a you know, liberal arts degree, and now they don't have a job because that's not what people want. And so they have all this debt because they weren't doing something that people actually value. Because you know, there are a few people that make millions of dollars painting. There's not all that many. Um, and so, you know, not everyone who wants to be a painter is going to make it as a painter. And to say that, well, you have all these mundane jobs that are actually producing something useful, that that doesn't matter when it comes down to it. All that matters is fine art. Uh, you, you have a real problem. And you mislead a lot of people into thinking that that's what they should be seeking, too, because it's, I mean, it, you know, as you were describing it, I mean, it is a lot like the all the people that play basketball and only a certain pe- number of people get into the NBA and they make a lot of money and most of the other people just waste a lot of time playing basketball. And, and that's what art is like, is that it's a very select group that does that. But if you think back that even like painting, you were saying painting, well, you know, painting has a whole different level of, of skill, right? I mean, there's somebody who can paint a room and then there's somebody who can paint, paint a design on the room. And it used to be, if you were good enough, people would keep paying you to do more intricate things and to the point that you became an artist. Now it's more like, you know, it's a lottery or the, it's probably even less a lottery than who you're connected to and who can move you and who you can get in front of to say all of a sudden that this is art. I mean, there used to be a connection back to really, th- you know, really basic things. Did you make the room look better? I mean, and you think about the, the that kind of art, and just recognize that there are other there are other forms of expression that are functionally filling a lot of those spaces that were just not technically available. So, you know, in the past, if you there was a certain demand for really good painters because there were wealthy people who wanted pictures of themselves. 
Right. You had lots of people like that. Well, nowadays, there's a whole lot of technology where you can get pictures of yourself that don't require painters. And so, and so you've got people that, I mean, we don't think of them as being fine artists, but those people who make good money doing a solid living, taking wedding photography would be functionally right. in that same space. Or you could just think about, you know, hey, I want really nice web design. I need a good graphic designer. Well, there's a lot of people who have just good average jobs who, in any sense of the word, we, sh we, we should think of them as artists, but we've kind of cut that off in another and, sense. And I do think that there's some that are really brilliant at their web design versus there's a lot that are that sure. are good and there's a bunch that are mediocre and this is what artistry used to be is that it was a it was a you know it's a pyramid and that there's people as you go up that the level of skill increases and that's still true in areas today but we don't want to call that fine art because fine art has moved away from that i think in a lot of ways and there's a lot of uh, a lot of people talk about now about how you know trades people uh, you know they don't have the standards they used to um, you know they they don't really take pride in their work um, you know, take that that phrase with a grain of salt. Um, but but and it's hard to know how much of that is just nostalgia for the good old days. It's always there. But you know, there does seem to be a real. Um, you know, people just look for anything that is functional and not and without as much appreciation for let let me get something that has actual craftsmanship uh, behind it. And you know, part of that is denigrating, saying, well, you know, if you're really good at making this thing, well, in the end. It's not art. doesn't really matter. The fact that you're really good at your job doesn't matter. But in really practical ways, I mean, it still does, right? Because like a tract house, right, where it's a, a, you know, a subdevelopment that all the houses are the same. You look at the quality of builders that build that versus the quality of builders that build million-dollar homes or probably $5 million homes now because the price of homes have gone up so much. But, I mean, the skill level is noticeably different. And the finishing that they do is noticeably different. And so what happened is the same thing like with the airline industry as people complain about how small the seats are. Yeah, but there's like 20 times more people flying than used to as a percentage of the population. And that's what people are looking at houses and going, look at how terrible they are. But those houses proportional to what they cost before when the craftsmanship was higher, they're a lot cheaper and a lot more people have bigger houses and stuff. Everybody's house would have to shrink by a factor of five if they wanted to go back to the quality before. So people are choosing what to pay for. And there's always people that have more money that say, I'll choose a higher quality. Right. And I think this is, this is an, an important point. I mean, it's an important point to remember for the 99% of us who don't have quote-unquote artistic jobs is that, you know, there's a calling from God to, to do your jobs well. And, you know, he doesn't, God, there's not a lot of verses in scripture um, saying be painters, be, um, be poets. Um, but there are verses um, that talk about do real physical jobs and do them well. Verses like Exodus 35, 10 through 12. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tents, its coverings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the ark and its poles, with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering. And there you had this call for all the people in Israel who were skilled in these particular trades to come. And they were going to serve God in a very real, very obvious, very physical way by making these things with fine craftsmanship, doing a careful and a good job. They were gifted by God to do these things. And although we're not building tabernacles nowadays, we still have giftings. And if we're doing our work um, hard and uh, with care, with skill, that is still something that we're commanded to do. 
you can look at the more general admonition in Scripture that says, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. You know, I mean, there's this part of it where God says, even if you don't have a job that you think of as an artisanal job, even if it's not something that you think of as skilled labor, God says, do it with everything that you have, which means there's a part of it where it's, it's your approach to it, where we've moved things around to the impression that it leaves on others. The real part of, there's an aspect of, of skill. When the focus is on skill, the focus is on, am I doing this as well as I can? Am I doing? Are there better ways that I could be doing this? Am I actually accomplishing things? There's a, there's an uh, artist named Eric Sloan. He was an artist and a writer. He became interested in Americana, and so he wrote a lot of books like The Reverence of Wood, Eric Sloan's America, Diary of an Early American Boy. Um, and in one of the, I think it's in Eric Sloan's America, he talks about when he shows children, he will show them things from like that were made in the 1800s, uh, the mid 1800s, and he'll he'll show them these things that a lot of tools that people had they made themselves. And he says, almost everything you find, he said, it's dated and it's signed. And he said, when you look at it, he goes, he goes, these are just, this is everybody. And he said, you look at the care that they put into the things that they made. You look at the effort. He goes, these things, they're not, they're nowhere near as crude as you would think they would be. They're actually fairly nice instruments frequently. And he said, there was just this approach to the world they were living in, that they needed something. They made it with their hand. They put their name on it. They put the date that they made it on it. There was just this, he said, there was just this sense of care with things. And he said, that's something that's kind of shifted over time, and I think you can see that same that same connection in what you're talking, what we've been talking about, is the loss of that connection between my labor, my obligation, not pride, but obligation and duty to do this in a in a good way. But I do think you have to be careful with that because, say, you had a post, and all you're doing is hand tools instead of electric tools. So to make a post for a, a building, say it takes you thirty hours you're a lot more likely to do it than if you take a chainsaw and you have it done in 15 minutes. You work on it hard for a week, you're a lot more likely to sign it than if you, you know, so some of the ways we're building houses and stuff, right? I mean, it's sure. a lot faster just because nobody's going to, we're not spending the same amount of time because it's become so much easier to do things. Sure. And I think an important part of this is that it's not, this doesn't just apply to handicrafts and things you're physically making. I mean, if you see art as a skill, I mean, that applies Anything, everything any yeah. that anything is a skill and and the question is what it, when you're doing your work are are you viewing it as putting in the hours and the minimum effort to get a paycheck or are you viewing it as a trade as a craft that you look for ways to get better at you look for ways to advance you care about what you're doing and that that's the mentality and that can apply to anything that can apply to you know a waiter at a restaurant that can apply to you know, someone, you know, engineering buildings. I mean, it all, you don't have to have a physical product to treat your job like a, like a trade, like an art. Right. But I mean, part of that though, is you always have to make sure that you're measuring the artistry of it in the right way. I mean, I remember when I was a short order cook, the most important thing there was to get the food done, not to make it the best food in the world. Right. And the fact that I could cook more hamburgers at one time than anybody else, I was an art of the grill, right. an artist of the grill, short order cook but in you could still say that other, yeah, but you could still say that other people, well, he didn't cook it as neatly as he could have or et cetera, but it is measured you in terms of its utility. say my hamburger's still raw. <laughs> well, that would be a problem, but, it, but it's measured in terms of utility. That's why we have to be careful when we do it. You always have to measure the artistry against the purpose. And not against just saying that you should do it better. Better is very contextual. A good example, I mean, honestly, was I remember a few years ago, somebody did a critique of like the Drudge Report's website. And they were talking about how that 
somebody should really come in and they should redesign it. It's just it's it's an old style of design. And someone else wrote an article and they went, "You guys are nuts." They went. The purpose of the Drudge Report is to convey as much information as it can. If you look at it, when you go there, the most important things are at the top. If they're really important, it's red. If it's super important, there's a siren at the top. Over the course of the day, things move down, and as news gets stale, it moves down, down, and it finally drops off the page. They're like, everything about the page tells you everything. And it, that's kind of what you're arguing is someone else could come in and say, it doesn't have all these different things. It doesn't have all these different features that are available today. But its purpose, it was serving it perfectly. It was artistry. It was something that someone else could come in and they could ruin the website. And they would say, this is now beautiful. And you'd go, you've destroyed everything about it that made it useful. And part of the difficulty, going back to earlier in the conversation where we were talking about high art, is high art's lost any sense of purpose. Right. You know, the things that we look at from previous centuries as high art that are worth preserving, that, that humans have preserved, the sorts of things that we pay millions of dollars in hanging museums, you know, you can say, rightly or wrongly, those artists had senses of purpose for what they were doing. I was doing something because I'm trying to convey something. And nowadays, and, and it's partly a reflection, and it's also partly a push of the modern mind. You can see in modern art that we're just totally unmoored. We don't know what we're doing this for anymore. We're searching for meaning and, and coming to the conclusion there is no meaning, so I'm just going to drip paint on a canvas. And one of the purposes that, you know, the old artists had, um, by and large, and, you know, the top modern artists have, too, is they want to make money and they want to be paid. Um, and, and, you know, you can look at the person putting up the blank canvas, and while he may not necessarily have this be demonstrating great, you know, skills in painting. He does have skills and he does have, you know, art, generally speaking. I mean, he knows how to communicate that painting and how to sell it. He, he, is, he has great art of salesmanship. Um, you know, usually you art of using connections is usually the main thing right. that they have. Yeah, but yeah, that's still or, a skill. Yeah. Or you look at, you know, that Banksy painting that got shredded. I mean, that's, you know, to put on that type of spectacle, showmanship. <laughs> I mean, that's a real art. Now, is it a good art? Is it a profitable art? That's a separate question. But Is you, it moral or is it immoral? Right, is right? it moral or immoral? But it definitely, you know, you definitely do see uh, skill come through in, in, type, in these types of things. Right. And a lot of the skill is in manipulation. And I think that's really important to recognize is that, you know, because they're not going to take down the the blank canvas on the wall that somebody sold them for eighty four thousand dollars because you know it's take the money and run. It's because it got news everywhere, and so they're going to keep it up there because you know they're they're actually happy with it because it got what they wanted and they sold them what they wanted and they, you know, it is about manipulating people so that that you get the money. And so the, it's really easy to look at fine art and especially the way they portray, you know, previous generations, you know, fine artists and portray them as these, you know, uh, you know they, they're just doing it for the art. That's always been garbage. It's always been related to money. They're doing it because they're better at it than anybody money, else. So they get fame, paid more. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. They it's get paid whether it's, whether it's paid in money or that's paid in you know, notoriety or paid in anything else. But right. they're getting paid for this and they're doing it. And they get better at it, not just because some love for the art, but because there's real practical benefits to them. Right. This is one of the reasons why we kind of said that you have, you know, that God's the one who gets to decide what art is. But there's a part of it where sometimes what people do is they come in and they go, you know, people like Pablo Picasso, they had no skill. They had no, you know, th that's not art. They had no skill. My six-year-old could do that. Right. Or better. And the truth is, is 
Pablo Picasso did have skill. He was skilled. He was selling a set of ideas. And like you said, whether it was a mix of salesmanship, con artistry, but I mean, in the end, there's a whole... But he was skilled with a paintbrush, too. Right. I mean, let's yes. put that in context. He was skilled with a and, paintbrush. And there's a whole... I mean, he, he created a philosophical view of looking at the world, even if it was... Even if it was you could look at it from Christianity and say they shouldn't have done that, he still caused a, a percentage of the world to, to look and say, this is how we're going to view the world. And so there's a part of it where what you really want to judge Pablo Picasso on is the morality of his art, not whether he had skill. Because men use their skill for evil things. Men can use their skill to twist the word of God. Men can use their skill to, you know, to twist what they draw and to cause other people to do that. And so I think there's a part of it where the answer isn't to go, they have no skill. And, and I understand from a language point of view. Sometimes what people mean is, is art has to be good. Art has to point you in a good direction. But you're getting kind of fuzzy in the end. I mean, in the end, that's not really a useful way to fundamentally define art. It's better to say, this is a moral art. There's music that people are very skilled at creating, and it takes you in a pla- to a place you shouldn't go. You shouldn't follow after them. You shouldn't learn their ways. You shouldn't listen to them. These are the, these are the admonitions of Scripture. But it doesn't say they don't have skill. I mean, we have a we have a visual representation of this. I mean, here's two paintings by Picasso in greatly different styles. You know, the one on the left, you know, uh, very skilled. The one on the right, at first glance, you might say, you know, that person doesn't know anything about proportion or it's just blotches of color. It's the same person who painted both of them. And the reason why I did the second one was for, you know, a predict- it was intentional. He could have done the other one, but he didn't. Right. And I think it's important to recognize that the reason we know his name is because he did the one on the right, not the one on the left. He understood what the market wanted. He understood that there were people that were in open rebellion to God that didn't want the world the way that it was and were trying to make the world into a different thing. And so he gave them a very skilled representation of a mangled world because that's what people wanted because that's how they saw the world. And there was a group of people that saw the world that way that wanted to expand it. So they liked his art because it moved their purpose. And even even, uh, I've seen write-ups about, you know, I don't remember the artist's name, but it's one of these people who just has like the splashes of color, you know, very, you know, not not concrete at all. Looks like something that a kid could do. And the people are saying, you know, actually, it took a long time to do that. And the way he blends the color, um, it, it takes a lot of skill. And if you really look at it, a child couldn't do that. But the question is, what was he getting at with that? And is it something that, you know, is valuable that we should go put on our walls just because there was skill in it doesn't mean that it's something that is good to, to, to do or good to, good to buy. I have a lot of confidence that I could do the blue line painting, even though I'm not an artist, <laughs> right. so I still think I could do that. The blank canvas, I'm sure I could do that. <laughs> Stretch it and staple it. You're done. <laughs> $84,000. Pay by check, Bitcoin, whatever you want. <laughs> I'll even give you four instead of two. <laughs> so when we talk about morality, I mean, we shouldn't think that God doesn't, say things about morality of it and certainly the the second commandment not to make any images of anything in heaven or on earth below the idea to bow down and worship them i mean that's the that's the pinnacle of the the commandments about art right it's don't do any art that causes people to turn away from the living god that's a really important thing to say because there's this part of it where you know i think i've said before calvin talks about the unsaved man that his his mind is an idol factory and even the saved, that we still have these, we still have the patterns, the former patterns of the things that we've submitted ourselves to. 
we've talked about this in other episodes, it's really easy to practice idolatry. We think we're sophisticated. We think we're removed from that. We're not. Idolatry, just the shapes of it changes, the forms of it change, the, the way that you practice it might change. But in the end, idolatry is really prevalent. And so it's very, very easy to say, like we talked about, there's a part of it when you look for higher art, there's a, even the language, the higher you go, you start talking about transcendence, you start talking about something that is above you, there's a point where art is worship. And it's just, we have to be really careful when you think about these things, because it's, it's something that anyone can fall into. And a lot of Christian art, a lot of, you know, art that's called Christian art, aside from some of it being bad art, objectively, from the perspective of quality, is also bad for morality from the sense of that it calls you to false ideas of God. And as hard as the idea of art is to define, as much as we might struggle with that, idolatry is not hard to define. The structure of idolatry is pretty basic. It's man decides to make something and bow down to it and serve the created thing instead of God the creator. Right. And and when you when you have that, you can say all idolatry is art. Now, not all not all art is idolatry; it doesn't work that way. But anything that is an idol is something that man created and elevated to a place beyond what it right. its proper place was, it's if it man, had any proper place. When man renders his heart and mind in service to something other than God, it is idolatry. And those things that he's rendering it to are always something where he's pushing the thing up. And maybe it's, maybe he's worshiping the sun, and you can say, well, he didn't make the sun, but he's putting the sun in a place where the sun doesn't belong. Right. Um, whereas, you know, clearly if you're making a, a totem pole and then bowing down to it, obviously you've made it something that we now consider art. And That's something that's addressed very directly in verses like uh, Deuteronomy 12, 2 and 3. Um, which says, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. And if you go to a museum that has ancient art in it, you'll see that you know most of that art, if not all of that art, uh, involves idolatry, it's depictions of the gods of that culture, and the biblical command was to destroy it. And you know now, you know even most Christians probably would say, well, we shouldn't destroy it. We should not worship it. We should not use it for idolatry, but we should keep it as an appreciation of for its aesthetic qualities. We should just view it as art, not as idolatry. But God says no. Uh, it that, will is, be that is that is that is bad art. That is immoral art, and it needs to actually be destroyed, not put in a museum, but destroyed. And with I remember when we invaded Afghanistan, that was one of the reasons, of, you know, because the Muslims took over. You know, when the Taliban took over all of Afghanistan, they were tearing down these ancient idols, and it was just so evil, and we had to go in to stop them. That was actually one of the arguments for why we went into Afghanistan. The giant Buddha statues, right? The giant, they were, giant they were Buddha blowing statues. them up. Yeah, and so we have to go in and stop it because they're trying to destroy idols. I'm not sure that biblically that's that's wise. And so we just have to recognize that a lot of our idolatry is not just— we don't just get distracted from 
from with things that cause us to worship a God other than a God. We can also be distracted by worshiping our ancestors, which is what they're doing. They're saying, oh, we don't care that it's Buddha, but 2,000 years ago they carved this, so this we have to we have to treat it like it has this intrinsic value because it's old. We're cultural because, hoarders, right? And but even more than that, we're we're cultural where we're saying because it's old, it intrinsically has right. value. And when you think of the second commandment, it is talking about art of a specific kind, but it's like adultery where that's where a married man sleeps with a married woman or vice versa. I mean, or, you know, one of them's married at least. And then there's still fornication that's a sin. And what we want to look at is with the second commandment that you have the idea of, well, you made this God that you bowed down to. Well, a lot of the stuff that we do, we don't bow down to them, but we're still idolatrous towards them because we're saying, well, they're 500 years old. Well, who cares if they're, if they're pornography from 500 years ago, you should destroy it. It doesn't matter. Right. And let's be honest. The priests of an ancient religion didn't care as much if you came and bowed down. They cared if you dropped some money in the bin. They cared if you, if you, sh- you know what I mean? There's this part of it where if you showed honor to their God, they were fine with that. And there's this part where there's lots of ways to show honor to something that we worship. Even with you, you don't have to bow down to it to serve it. I mean, you think about you know smashing idols. Um, that that goes right into Reformation history, where one of the things that the Reformation was characterized by is a city would go over to the Reformation and they would smash up the cathedral, break break down the idols in the cathedral. And today, that you know is a big black mark against the Reformation that they did that. Um, but if you look at it biblically, it wasn't really. And I think it'd be interesting, you know, for someone else who knows more about this to, to talk, to look into, if, if it isn't already out there, you know, the connection between the Reformation and art. Because also, you know, you have in uh, just after the Reformation or in the later parts of the Reformation in Holland is the same era as uh, the golden age of Dutch art, a country that's heavily influenced by Puritanism. And then they produce artists that today are recognized as some of the greatest artists of history. And so seems like there's a real connection there where they are, uh, on the one sense, destroying bad art and then producing art that even today is recognized as good art. And I think that's true for music, too, because you look at what happens with music is that, that you know, the reformers come in and say, well, what the Roman Catholic Church did with music was to drive people to think that the music was worship. And then there was a whole movement about being more orderly in music, more, I mean, you'd you'd look and there was deliberate thought to say, how should the Bible work out itself in music? Yeah, and you end up getting, I mean, Johann Sebastian Bach and some of the, I mean, some a real reformation in a lot of ways within within the structure and standardization of the principles of music. Because if you think of art as a manifestation of the, you know, high art being the manifestation of the culture in a lot of ways, which is what art kind of is, is that when your culture changes, what you'll say is good art will change. Right. And if your culture actually has a reformation and moves towards Christianity, what you say is good art will change. And it did change after the reformation. And we look back and look at where our culture is, and it is a reflection of where we are theologically as a nation when we when we have somebody put a urinal and say, guess what, this is a piece of art. I mean, and one of the things that happened during the Reformation was you had a redefinition of the value of work. And that's that's worth mm-hmm. pointing out with the nature of, of fine art even. Because prior to the Reformation, the majority of things that we would call fine art were produced for wealthy people or for or for 
devotional purposes. And by that, I mean, you know, you're creating something that's going to adorn a church or you're creating an icon that somebody's going to use in their own personal little family altar. Um, but then what happened with the Reformation is they said, hey, everyday work is valuable. And the distinction that we have, that the distinction between the laity and the clergy really should be broken down because all work that's done for the glory of God is valuable work. And so you had the, an, an exaltation of everyday things, and that's what happened in this higher you're talking about in the, the Netherlands, is you had an exaltation of everyday things. You've got somebody like Vermeer who's painting a picture of a servant girl pouring milk out of a jug, and it's this phenomenal piece of art that never would have happened prior to the Reformation and a complete worldview shift about the nature of work. And so when you get these worldview shifts and then you start seeing them reflected in the art, that's really helpful. It kind of tells you where a culture is at a moment. And that's helpful for us right now because you can look at our art, the things that we consider fine art, and see where we are right now. And it's not good. I mean, and we, when we talk about fine art, I mean, yeah, one of the most widely consumed art in our culture is like movies and television shows and not television shows but streaming shows or whatever they're called now but that whole thing and you just look at even how that has shifted over the last 60 or 70 years right i mean you you go back to the 50s and the 60s and it was all morality plays not all but a large percentage of it was morality plays saying you should go do the right thing you know the high noon where you stand up and even though you're going to die you stand up there and you say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna fight the bad guys coming in and and that form of art was all about pushing people towards i mean there was some rugged individualism in there too but doing the right quote-unquote thing and right. now it's kind of the opposite of that and even in the 60s you see a movement away from that the anti-hero movement and all that right. stuff and you can see our culture shifted and it's really reflected in the most widely consumed art which would be movies you know god says that redeem the time for the days are full of evil it's considering the time as precious, and that doesn't eliminate the aesthetic, but we should be thinking of time being a precious thing. And so, you know, and the fulfillment of purpose. For instance, the, the story that's written in such a way, the book that's written in such a way to communicate a truth that people need to understand, you can do that with a varying, you know, a lot of books that are written by Christians that are, you know, supposed to be explaining things. They do a pretty lousy job a lot of times that, the church in a lot of ways has lost the idea of art and lost the idea of, you know, all those things are supposed to be done so that they accomplish the purpose for which they were given. I mean, I think when you think about redeeming the time, it's very applicable to art because there's this part of it where I have children who have some who have artistic interests. And what you end up doing is when they're learning things is you end up, they end up wasting a lot of material. So you take something that's good, you buy clay, you hand them the clay, and then they ruin the clay. And, and that's what, and they spend time ruining the clay until they get better at making the clay. And time is like that. God has made time. Time is valuable. Time is useful. But you can have time, and when you're done with time, you can, you can have wasted the time. You can have effectively ruined the time. You know, the time was used up, and you have nothing to show for it. And so, I mean, it, it really is, people just forget that in the sense that when you do art, when you do anything of skill, you use up things. You have to use up things. You can't do art with nothing. And so there is this part of it where redeeming the time is very much tied to skill because one person in an hour can do something that's incredibly useful or you can do something that's worth nothing to anyone at all. And so, I mean, it is, it is 
just directly connected to the idea of skill and what you're doing with it. Or he can do something that could be useful, but it's not useful now. It's not the, how many times, have, you know, what are you doing right now? Well, we need to get out the, like you're talking about with the short order cook. I'm cooking the perfect piece of fish. Great. We have 50 hungry people out there. Cook 50 good pieces of fish. And you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it, it really is tied to that. Yeah, I think it's something where we're supposed to, we're also called to be intentional about things. When we're doing the time, when we're using our lives, we should be using it for a purpose. So whether we're creating art or whether we're consuming art, we should know, we should try to be intentional about it. We shouldn't just pick things randomly. Um, And, you know, not that everything needs to have a super profound meaning. You know, there's times where you, you need to relax you need to do these types of things, and that's that's is part of redeeming the time. It's not right. working yourself to death, um, but but still, you, we should be able to explain why are we doing this? Why do we? Why are we? Why are we creating this art? Why are we choosing this to put on our wall? And I I'm gonna want to be careful because I don't think any of you guys are saying this, but I could see somebody listening to this thinking, oh, if art's not increasing my efficiency, then it's worthless, or you know, or it's it's not worthless, but it, it's yeah, it's worth less than whatever else I could be doing. And I, you're not saying that by any means. When you think about Genesis 1 and 2 and, and it's what it says about man in there, and, and God says, let's make man in our own image. If you stop at Genesis 2 and you say, well, what do you know about the character of God? At the point at which God says, man is like me, I'm making man like me in some sense, what are the character and attributes of God that you know at that point? It's it's a shorter list than if you have the whole Bible. But the one that you've got is right there in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. You know, the, the first attribute that you know about God is that God's a creator. And then he made man in his own image. He made man, you know, a creator made man to be like him. And the first thing we know about him is, He's a maker. He makes things, and he makes this infinite variety of things. And you look at the world that God made, and nobody who looks at that world thinks, oh, this is, this is a world that's purely efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, you know, that where everything, you know, th- this is not a world designed by an engineer only. Although engineers look at it and say, wow, I can never design anything like that. And artists look at it and say, wow, I could never make anything quite that intricate and that beautiful as these things that God made. And so there's a sense in which being an artist or doing artistic things or looking at your mundane things and trying to do them in an artistic way is a way in which you are fulfilling the purpose which God put into you in making you like him. And you can elevate, you know, you can make yourself into God. You can make yourself into the creator and, you know, be the idol in your own mind. But And that's wrong. And that's wrong. Yes. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Anytime we talk about idolatry, it's bad. <laughs> but there's another sense in which, you know, you can act the artist and 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 find a whole lot of satisfaction in that because that's what God made you to be doing. You know, we're not like animals. There's very, very few animals that you could say do things for anything other than efficiency's sake. You know, it's all about how do I get my next meal? How do I get shelter for my young? How do I make the next generation survive? And how do I not die? And humans in God's providence have a lot more meaning to their life than those bare basics. 
And going beyond, you know, efficiency, you know, beauty is a huge thing. You know, God created a, a world and he said it was good. And although it's corrupted by the fall, there is still goodness in it. There is still uh, beauty in it that we can see from the handiwork of God in it. And and so beauty is a real thing. And I, we're, the podcast is already going along. And so I don't think we're going to try to tell you what beauty is if we would ever want to do that. But, but, but it's even harder be- to find than art. But beauty is a real concept. And it's not something that is in the eye of the beholder. There are real standards for it. And it's not something that you can just do whatever you want and call it beautiful. So I think we should try to, to put some more clarity into what is what is good art for Christians. I mean, what should what should we be looking for in art uh, when we're doing art and speaking here more in terms of like aesthetic objects rather than just your trade, your job. But but what types of things should we be would be looking for? And I would be say we should be looking at art as pomegranates. Uh, pomegranates. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but we should be looking at art as a product of skilled labor that is something that helps us do the things that God commands us to do and thus brings glory to him. Um, and so it's something that has the skill there, um, but it's also helping us obey God because we were talking about, you know, the morality of it in terms of, uh, you know, uh, idolatry, but it even comes down to what is the message that communicating. Um, and because everything is communicating some sort of message with some sort of clarity. And what message is it communicating? Is it one that is leading you towards God or one that's leading you away from him? Um, another another thing that you see in, <clears throat> in scripture too a lot is symbolism and meaning uh, that is beyond you know something that just comes and tells you what it means. You, know, you look at the tabernacle and the temple, uh, the sacrificial system. There's a tremendous amount of symbolism in those. Um, and so to create art that uses symbolism, I think is is very much in line with with what scripture teaches. I mean, you, you, there's there's one particular case that I keep thinking of in this discussion, and that's the that's the golden lampstand that's put in the tabernacle. And you think about the instructions God gives for that is to make this incredibly intricate lampstand with its seven branches and its bowls and, and places for the wicks to go so that you can get the oil through it. He says you're supposed to make this out of one hammered piece of gold, which is about the most inefficient way to make that particular lampstand. It'd be better if you made it in parts. It'd be better maybe if you cast some of them instead of hammering it. You know, there's lots of better ways to make it, but there was a particular symbolism that God was asking of the artists to do it this incredibly hard way because there, there was meaning in how it was made and how it was constructed, which you know anybody who's doing fine arts ought to be thinking that way. What's the meaning in the thing that I'm doing? I'm... I'm wasting effort in doing this. I could be doing this a faster way if I did it another way. But I'm trying to convey a particular kind of meaning by spending these resources, spending this material, spending my time and spending your time as, as a viewer of, of my product. And I think, you know, a little, a little footnote on that, an interesting thing about the tabernacle, um, which because it, it's something that's created by artisans. We read that we read the verse about that. Um, but a lot of what they're doing is not things that would necessarily be considered art. Um, there are some sculpture pieces, but a lot of it is, you know, curtains. A lot of it is, uh, the, you know, simple boxes, quote unquote, simple boxes um, that they're not the fine art. They're not the painting. They're not the sculpture, but that is still very important. And it still has a lot of symbolism to it. Even in the temple where they build the temple and then it says no sound of a hammer is heard in the temple where they have these stones prepared 
skillfully where they just fit together. I mean, that is something that, you know, today who thinks about, you know, how smooth your stones are. I mean, they just come in the package, you slap them up, you're done. But, but that, that thing that, that they have it all ready to go, they just assemble the stones is remarkable artisanship. And, you know, it, it's said that in 70 AD when the Roman army knocked it down that, you know, all the nations were weeping because this thing was a spectacular building. I mean, it was, you know, it was on the top of the hill. It was white marble. It was it was a spectacular building that was unlike anything else in the world because, yeah, the way God commanded them to make it. And that was even the second one. Yeah. That people wept when they saw it because it wasn't as good as the first one. Right. I mean, there is a sense that when we look at, you know, and it's not just aesthetics, right? It can be making a meal. It can be all kinds of things that, that you know, even using the idea of efficiency, the question is, are you efficient in the purpose, right? And so there is a purpose where, where you know, the high quality is reflecting the nature of God and the care in which he takes in the world. And some of the most basic symbolism is that, that God just, you know, the the baby in the womb is, you know, intricately knit together. And, you know, when we do things like that, we are reflecting the character of God. So when we talk about the quality, the quality is pointing people when we seek to have a certain level of quality in certain aspects, because there's a place where you do things to cause people to survive. You shouldn't like when you're planting a row of corn, make sure it's perfectly straight. You should try to make it straight because it's more efficient, but you don't worry that no seed is out of place. But when you do other things that are pointing to the character of God, quality really matters because, you know, it's, it's defining the nature of the God that you're serving. And I think there's a lot of things that are done in the church that are pretty haphazard. And a lot of things that aren't done haphazard are not things that are drawing people towards God. They're drawing people away where a lot of the effort is put in. And when we think about art, and we, especially when we think about it in terms of the church, we should really be thinking, what would God say this has to be the more quality thing? I've heard a lot of sermons in my day that were had almost no quality, where they take a verse, they they jump off someplace else, they bring things together, they take it out of context, they twist it so it says something different. And especially the handling of the Word of God should be something that should be done with real artistry. When you come into a service where things are ordered, there was a lot of work that went into that. There was a lot of effort to make it in this way. Mm -hmm. When the Queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon, the things that she's blown away with by have a lot to do with the orderliness of his kingdom and the way, the thought that he put into the way his servants dressed, the way they were happy, the way he went up to the temple to worship. There was artistry in all these things. You should say the thing about Megan. Yeah, my wife was listening to a podcast the other day where the, the people were talking about house cleaning. And one of them said, you know, housekeeping is a consumable art form. And that just gave my wife such a wonderful perspective about, you know, the depressing nature of I'm going to clean this up and the kids are just going to, we have six kids, they're just going to mess it up tomorrow. It's just going to be dirt. There's just going to be dust again. And I'm just going to do it again. And But when you think, okay, I'm doing this thing that the purpose of it is to make the world beautiful for a little bit, and then I'm going to have to do it again and again. Hey, that's just what it is, a consumable art form. Just like, I mean, if you watch a, a 
cooking show on television, you're watching it because there's people who are artists with food. If you watch the Great British Baking Show or whatever your thing is, you watch that because there are people who are who are artists with something that is going to disappear very quickly. The point of it is to be consumed. And it's just helpful when you can start thinking about what am I doing when I do this thing? Is there a way that I can think about this everyday thing that I'm doing as more than just utility? I mean, when people, you've seen the commercials before about first-time parent versus second-time parent. And there they're making a joke about things. But the reality is, is one of the reasons why that changes is because when you first start, you it's like the it's like the short order cook who's trying to make the best piece of I mean we're going back to that is in the beginning you don't know what things are important and you're making everything important and by the time the second kid comes around you learn where a lot of things that you thought were important that's not important that doesn't matter at all and where I need to put my effort is here and by the time your seventh eighth ninth kid comes around you know what I mean there's this part of it where you have a better idea of where to put your energy, where to put your effort, what to focus on. I mean, and, and these things can change. I mean, it, it's a consumable art form. And if your goal is, is every day your house has to look like a museum and you have six kids, you're going to be really frustrated. But you, So you learn what things, this is okay. This is okay to be like this. I'm perfectly fine with this particular thing, but this, we're going to spend our time here because this really matters. You know, one of our favorite parenting verses is where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. I mean, it's a verse about work, but honestly, it's a, it's a great verse for parenting because it's like, I, what do I value? Do I value cleanliness to a certain degree or do I value potential in my children? When I, you know, as you're sitting here talking about a consumable art form, I mean, the example I just used was preaching. And the reality is that's a consumable art form, too. We shouldn't yes. think that that's somehow different. The reality is there's people that a year from then, they might think back and say, oh, yeah, I remember this from this passage. But they also might think back and go, I remember this meal that I ate. Or, and so we should recognize that a lot of the things that we do are consumable you know, the consumable art forms are not like everything is permanent. Podcasting. Podcasting maybe. would be the same thing. This episode is not permanent. It will come to an end. I mean, one thing is that we've talked about all this. We said in the beginning that, you know, God gets to decide what art is. And the other part of it is, is like you said, God is a creator. God, you know, I've talked to my kids before about what would it be like if you create, if you build a robot and the robot was amazing. The robot could do all these amazing things. The robot was incredible. And you bring it in and you show it to people and people look at the robot. And then after they're done looking at the robot, they go, robot, you're amazing. You're an incredible robot. You're so fantastic. I can't believe you can do all these things. How did you learn to do all these things? And you kind of in the corner go, I mean, I, I built the robot. And they go, yeah, yeah, we're talking to the robot right now. This robot is astounding. and. This is the world. God created everything. God is the artist. God has made all things. And so much of what gets past his art is a way for man to have glory, to glorify himself. And in the end, this thing that God made has created this thing that people want to ooh and ah over. And instead of looking at the, thi at the one who made everything, they want to focus on the thing that lets them feel good about their, themselves, and they want to ignore the creator. And there is just this part of it where this just puts the display of man's rebellion, it, it puts it on display. It shows us man's rebellion as for what it is. And we just need to understand that God is the artist. God deserves all glory. God deserves all credit. God deserves all honor for everything. 
And if that's your thought as you go towards things, you're going to be thinking about art right. You're going to be thinking about your life right, that God should be glorified by all things and everything that we do. Strategically, the way you think about it is, is that Satan is going to try and corrupt any good thing. And the better it is, the closer it is to, to goodness, the more he's going to try and corrupt it. And, and the worse the corruption will be if it sticks. I think it's really important just to recognize, I mean, what you kind of said before. God's a God of order and not confusion is what the Bible says. And Satan always brings confusion in. And that's the constant battle. And when we look, like even before the Reformation, I mean, there was, there was a lot of confusion in the church, right? There were a lot of naked babies on the walls. That's confusion. I'm sorry. They put a cherub that's really a naked baby with wings. I mean, that, that's that is not like what a cherub the, is in the Bible. <laughs> that's not what a cherub is in the Bible where people fall down in fear before them. But that's what it is in Roman Catholic churches. And this is really confusion, right? Where God says there should be shame, they're saying there's no shame. I mean, it's the opposite of pointing people towards God. And we should recognize that, you know, as the gospel was preached, as the Reformation happened, we got better. And now we're running far, far away with as much confusion as, as any society had, partly is because we have such great tools to make the confusion, right? I mean, we've created... There's been artists that have done really skillful things that allow us to have evil inventions that get really abused. But we should recognize that when we're doing something for the glory of God, we're supposed to do it in order. We're supposed to do it where it reflects the order that God created in the world instead of the order that we want to create in the world because his order is perfect and our order always has corruption in it. And so just thinking about it and thinking about it in that way and, you know, you look at modern art, and it's all about disorder, and it's from Satan. God says whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, anything that we do, we're supposed to do it for his glory. And when we think about art, that is the basic thing. Is the art glorifying God? Is it exalting the things that he says are good and right and just? Or is it exalting things that man or the world or Satan says are good? Because when we turn towards that, instead of being moral and useful and good art we've become something that is perverting people and twisting people so we need to as the church we need to speak against that perversion that twisting and also we need to be a people who desire to be artists desire to do things well desire to do things with the the skill level that that god deserves is the one that we're worshiping thanks for joining us This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.